Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your Victorianologist du jour, your literary mansplainer in chief michael ian black and it is a delight as always to be reading this book with you my knees are a little creaky at the moment because i've just deplaned as they say i've deplaned from deplane and i'm just at an age now where you sit in one of those chairs for any amount of time and it just it just creates creaks and aches like old furniture, like old heavy Victorian furniture that's been dried out. And that's how I am right now, dried and desiccated like old wood that has been stained and set in its place for too many years. And, you know, now I approach each episode of obscure, lo these many episodes later, with a certain amount of care and creak as well, because I know I have to be tender. So many terrible things are happening all at once. So death, 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 damnable death has finally visited us here on obscure. Days ago, There were three children and one on the way. Now there are no children and none on the way. The sorrows are now endless for Jude and his bride, Sue. When last we left them, Sue had gone upstairs. The doctor had come when he came down. 
uh, well, I'll just, I'll just reread it at a very late hour. The intelligence was brought to him, meaning Jude, that a child had been prematurely born and that it, like the others, was a corpse. So as I say, death, death, damnable death has descended like a shroud over this novel. And we are left now with two people who, as Sue described them, had a two-in-oneness, and they had been fruitful, they had multiplied, now they are back to their two-in-oneness, and only their two-in-oneness. And it's very difficult to see how this relationship will survive, or perhaps how their how they themselves will survive these tragedies. We're definitely nearing the end of the book. And one of the nice things about reading a, a book book as opposed to an ebook is the palpable sense you have of it coming to an end because you can see the pages in your hand. You can see how they have sped by. You can see the heft of them growing ever thinner. And so we know it's come, we know it's drawing to an end. What we don't know is who's going to live and who's going to die. Maybe they'll both live, but somehow I doubt it. Maybe they'll both die. I think that's a possibility. Uh, Right now, I'm thinking Jude alone will survive and that he will be condemned to walk the earth alone, like Job and uh, like Phillotson, I guess. When you get too close to love, love will bite your head off. Chapter three. Sue was convalescent, though she had hoped for death. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's a bummer of a, of a sentence right there. You know, she was recovering, you know, much to her chagrin. She would have preferred to die. And I understand that. I probably would feel the same in her situation. Sue was convalescent, though she had hoped for death. And Jude had again obtained work at his old trade. They were in other lodgings now, in the direction of Beersheba, and not far from the Church of Ceremonies, St. Silas. They would sit silent, more bodeful of the direct antagonism of things than of their insensate and stolid obstructiveness. I didn't understand that sentence. There were a lot of words in there, and I'm generally good at understanding sentences, you know, as we've gotten further along in the book here, but they would sit silent, got that, more bodeful of the direct antagonism of things. Oh, okay. So they're just the direct, uh, oh, so there's it, basically, he's, they're saying they would sit there knowing that the world is going to fuck them. <laughs> like the world is just directly going to come to them and fuck them, where Uh, they may have earlier thought, no, the world is just a little difficult and you get through it. That's not what they're thinking now. They're thinking, you know, guard up at all times. I understand that. Vague and quaint imaginings had haunted Sue in the days when her intellect scintillated like a star, that the world resembled a stanza or melody composed in a dream. It was wonderfully excellent to the half-aroused intelligence, but hopelessly absurd at the full waking. 
that the first cause worked automatically like a somnambulist and not reflectively like a sage, that at the framing of the terrestrial conditions there seemed never to have been contemplated such a development of emotional perceptiveness among the creatures subject to those conditions as that reached by thinking and educated humanity." But affliction makes opposing forces loom anthropomorphous, and those ideas were now exchanged for a sense of Jude and herself fleeing from a persecutor. That's a long-winded way of saying what I think I just said, which is that, yeah, the world's going to fuck you. I mean, I don't think every life comes to these same conclusions. Perhaps you started in difficult in sordid circumstances. Perhaps you started in a household of tumult and pain, and then you find yourself in later age enjoying the fruits of benevolence, your labors, perhaps, a love that you have found. And you think, ah, the world is not so terrible after all, as I thought it was when I was living under the, uh, the stairs like Harry Potter. Now that I have discovered my wizarding powers, I find that things are better than I thought they were where I think Jude and Sue both are coming at this from the opposite. While they both come from obscure uh, beginnings, I think they both shared a sense that the world was out there and that it, it hummed this hopeful song, as Sue was saying, this, the, 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 a stanza or melody composed in a dream. But no. We must conform, she said mournfully, all the ancient wrath of the power above us has been vented upon us, his poor creatures, and we must submit. There is no choice, we must. It is no use fighting against God. So now we're having a, I mean, I, you know, I know I'm talking too much, but that's a little, that's a little uh, change, right? For Sue to be penitent, she who turned Jude against God, who said, basically, it's all nonsense. It's all, it's all just a fiction. And now she can come to no other conclusion than that she was wrong and the price she paid was terrible. And then Jude says, it is only against man and senseless circumstance. True, she murmured. What have I been thinking of? I am getting as superstitious as a savage. Okay, so, I mean, so I should have read a little ahead before I, you know, diverted into my little soliloquy because as it turns out, she, she was just musing and now she's like, yeah, you're right, it's bullshit. Uh, but whoever or whatever our foe may be, I am cowed into submission. I have no more fighting strength left, no more enterprise. I am beaten, beaten. And now she's quoting, we are made a spectacle unto the world, into angels and to men. I am always saying that now. I feel the same. What shall we do? This is Sue. You are in work now, but remember, it may only be because our history and relations are not absolutely known. Possibly, if they knew our marriage had not been formalized, they would turn you out of your job as they did at Aldbrickham. I hardly know. Perhaps they would hardly do that. However, I think we ought to make it legal now, as soon as you are able to go out. You think we ought? Certainly. 
and Jude fell into thought. I have seemed to myself lately, he said, to belong to that vast band of men shunned by the virtuous, the men called seducers. It amazes me when I think of it. I have not been conscious of it or of any wrongdoing towards you, whom I love more than myself. Yet I am one of those men. I wonder if any other of them, wait, I wonder if any of them are the same pure, blind, simple creatures as I. Yes, Sue, that's what I am. I seduced you. You were a distinct type, a refined creature intended by nature to be left intact. But I couldn't leave you alone. So that's a curious sentiment. Okay, so clearly in these situations, people are going to blame themselves. People are going to say, this is all my fault. You know, you know, this terrible thing has befallen us and it's all my fault. And you beat your breast about it. And so Jude is kind of casting around looking for ways to blame himself for what has happened. And he's saying, I never should have approached you. You were this otherworldly being and I wouldn't leave you alone. I was trying to seduce you. You were with Phillotson. I was trying to seduce you. I wouldn't let it go. And now look what's happened. And, you know, he's not wrong. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm not saying he's right, but, you know, A always connects to B, B always connects to C. And you go on down the line. And we do not know in the moment that we are making choices, the outcome of those choices. We only do what we think is best in the moment. And when you get to Z and you look back and you go, well, I wouldn't have gotten here, you know, except for EFG and STU and all the others. But here I am. And so you look back on the points along the way and each individual letter and you say, well, had I only gone from D to H, this wouldn't have happened. But you can't, right? You just can't. You don't know how you're going to get there, but you always get there the same route. The alphabet always proceeds apace. So he's saying, I'm blaming myself, you know, if I just left you alone. And she's saying, no, no, Jude, she said quickly. Don't reproach yourself with being what you are not. If anybody is to blame, it is I. I supported you in your resolve to leave Phillotson, and without me, perhaps, you wouldn't have urged him to let you go. I should have just the same. As to ourselves, the fact of our not having entered into a legal contract is the saving feature in our union. We have thereby avoided insulting, as it were, the solemnity of our first marriages. Solemnity? Jude looked at her with some surprise and grew conscious that she was not the Sue of their earlier time. Yes, she said, with a little quiver in her words. I have had dreadful fears, a dreadful sense of my own insolence of action. I have thought that I am still his wife. Whose? Richard's. Good God, dearest, why? Oh, I can't explain. Only the thought comes to me. It is your weakness, a sick fancy without reason or meaning. Don't let it trouble you. Sue sighed uneasily. Well, okay, I'm going to play dime store psychologist for a second. Here's what I think this is about. And it would make sense in a certain way if the book ends with her back with Phillotson, you know, tormenting herself for the rest of her days. But she is looking for punishment, right? She blames herself 
for the death of the kids, and incidentally, as we discussed in the last episode, not without some cause. I mean, she was a moron through and through to say the things to little father time that she did, that life is better better to be out of life than in it, for example. You know, when you say to a member of the Adams family, hey, death is pretty cool, the Adams family person is going to go, yeah, it kind of is, right? Let's do something about it. That's, That's the whole Adams family vibe. And so when you say to little Pugsley or little Wednesday Adams, hey, you know what would be cool? Suicide. You know, they might just take you up on it. Okay. That is her cross to bear. She didn't know, moronically somehow, that the kid was a morbid little freak. Okay? She didn't allow her brain to travel as far down that street as maybe she ought to have. So she is not entirely to blame here. Of course not. Nobody can fully take the responsibility for the actions of others, though we may share in some of that responsibility. And I think, to play dinosaur psychologist, that what, it, what would be the worst way for her to punish herself? And I think the answer is to go back to Phillotson. Not to die. She craves death. And certainly not to live with Jude, because she does love him. But to go back to the person whom she believes she also betrayed, Phillotson. Under no other circumstances could she possibly imagine being with this person. But to endure a life with him would be a special kind of torture for her from which she could never escape. And that to her probably seems like a fitting punishment. She's not putting words to it, but I am because that's what I do. And now I'm going to take a break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, Hi, guys. Hello. Welcome back to Obscure. Let's keep going, shall we? As a set-off against such discussions as these, there had come an improvement in their pecuniary position, which earlier in their experience would have made them cheerful. 
Jude had quite unexpectedly found good employment at his old trade almost directly he arrived, the summer weather suiting his fragile constitution. And outwardly, his days went on with that monotonous uniformity which is in itself so grateful after vicissitude. People seemed to have forgotten that he had ever shown any awkward aberrancies, and he daily mounted to the parapets and copings of colleges he could never enter, and renewed the crumbling freestones of mullioned windows he would never look from, as if he had known no wish to do otherwise." There was this change in him, that he did not often go to any service at the churches now. One thing troubled him more than any other, that Sue in himself had mentally traveled in opposite directions since the tragedy. Events which had enlarged his own views of life, laws, customs, and dogmas, had not operated in the same manner on Sue's. She was no longer the same as in the independent days, when her intellect played like lambent lightning over conventions and formalities which he at that time respected, though he did not now. On a particular Sunday evening, he came in rather late. She was not at home, but she soon returned when he found her silent and meditative. "'What are you thinking of, little woman?' he asked curiously." Oh, I can't tell clearly. I have thought that we have been selfish, careless, even impious in our courses, you and I. Our life has been a vain attempt at self-delight, but self-abnegation is the higher road. We should mortify the flesh, the terrible flesh, the curse of Adam. Well, she just said she can't tell clearly, and then she says very clearly what she was thinking. (laughs) Uh, you know, Sue's, Sue, Sue is going over, you know, she's, she's becoming a, um, you know, a, 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 I don't want to say a Christian cause that's not quite the word that I'm looking for, but she's heading kind of over into, into MAGA territory, I suspect, you know, but the Q variety, you know, the, the, the conspiracist variety, I think she's, you know, she's going to turn into one of these QAnon people. That's where I think she's heading in this moment. Sue, he murmured, what has come over you? We ought to be continually sacrificing ourselves on the altar of duty. But I have always striven to do what has pleased me. I well deserved the scourging I have got. I wish something would take the evil right out of me and all my monstrous errors and all my sinful ways. Sue... My own too suffering dear, there's no evil woman in you. Your natural instincts are perfectly healthy, not quite so impassioned, perhaps, as I could wish, but good and dear and pure. Meaning, you know, he's saying, look, you're totally healthy. I wish you would put out more. (laughs) I think that's what he's saying. But, you know, otherwise, totally fine. And as I have often said, you are absolutely the most ethereal least essential woman I ever knew to exist without inhuman sexlessness. I mean, in our day, you know, you say that to somebody and they're going to be insulted. He means it 
he means the same exact thing, but he means it as a compliment uh, in the sense that he's saying she is so little given to the pleasures of the flesh that it's virtuous. We would be saying, my God, what is what is the matter with you? Why do you hate my touch? We would be saying or anybody's touch. Why do you, and then uh, he continues, why do you talk in such a changed way? We have not been selfish, except when no one could profit by our being otherwise. You used to say that human nature was noble and long-suffering, not vile and corrupt, and at last I thought you spoke truly, and now you seem to take such a much lower view. I want a humble heart and a chastened mind, and I have never had them yet. You have been fearless, both as a thinker and as a feeler, and you deserved more admiration than I gave. I was too full of narrow dogmas at that time to see it. Don't say that, Jude. I wish my every fearless word and thought could be rooted out of my history. Self-renunciation, that's everything. I cannot humiliate myself too much. I should like to prick myself all over with pins and bleed out the badness that's in me. Okay, so the MAGA QAnon thing, that's close, but that's not quite, I think, where where she's heading. She's heading towards uh, the chicks in, in A Handmaid's Tale, right? She's heading, that's what, that's who she wants to be. She wants to be one of those women not the handmaid. She wants to be one of the, whatever they're called, the high prestige women, women, or even I should say the low prestige women, the sexless women, the women who are forced to do the bidding of their masters. And she wants to live a life of utter penitence and more than that, of suffering. And in suffering, she can become clean again. That's what she's hoping. She's hoping she can just sort of get some sort of moral leeches and apply them to her skin and have them drain the evil from her, no matter the pain. In fact, the pain is the point. She wants the pain. She wants those pins and needles stuck in her like a voodoo doll so that she can be released of the spirit that is possessing her. Everything that she thought to this point, she's now saying, I was wrong. I was wrong, Jude. I was wrong. And I have corrupted you and I have destroyed lives in the process. Death would be too good for me. I should just suffer. And we know people like this. We know people who, you know, and it's, a, it's in and of itself, it's a very selfish way of looking at the world. Because she's saying, these children died because of me. But if you take that a step further, she's also saying the children only lived so they could die, so I could be made aware of my own shortcomings and vices, which is a very kind of myopic way to look out on the world. And again, we know people like that who think everything that happens in this world is meant to be somehow uh, another page in the story of their own lives, as opposed to individual novels that are going on without you. So she says that, you know, pins and bleed all out of the badness that's in me. Hush, he said, pressing her little face against his breast as 
her his breast as if she were an infant. It is bereavement that has brought you to this. Such remorse is not for you, my sensitive plant, but for the wicked ones of the earth who never feel it. I ought not to stay like this, she murmured, when she had remained in the position a long while. Why not? It is indulgence. Still on the same track, but is there anything better on earth than that we should love one another? Yes, it depends on the sort of love. In yours, ours, is the wrong. Well, you know, Sue, you're being a real wet rag here. You know, you're just wringing all the fun out of the story here. Bad things happen and you get on with it. You get on with it, Sue. Not that I ever could in those circumstances. You get on with it. Hey, Shakespeare, why couldn't you get on with it in those circumstances? I just couldn't. Most people couldn't. But I'm rooting for Sue here. I'm rooting for Sue to kind of snap out of it. You know, here's the thing. If you if you subscribe to a certain uh, religiosity, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, a certain religion. And, you know, I'm speaking specifically here of Christianity or maybe most of the monotheistic religions. There's already an afterlife, right? Like, if you're to blame for shit, and it seems like she blames herself for a lot of shit, like, you're going to get yours when you die. So, if you're already kind of irredeemable here, just get on with it. You know what I mean? You don't, you know, you're going to get your reward one way or the other. And you don't need to make your own life hell when you've got hell waiting for you. That's a, that's a very simplistic way of thinking about things, but that's what I do as your literary mansplainer-in-chief. That's what mansplaining is all about, you know? Reduction, reduction, reduction. Talking out your ass when you don't have any idea what you're talking about. But I actually did find someone who does know what she's talking about. Liz Lenz is a writer and journalist. She has a column with the Iowa Gazette. She's on staff with the Columbia Journalism Review. And her new book, Godland, is all about the ways in which marriage and religion can kind of mess with our heads, even when we aren't living in Victorian England. So I called her up at her home in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to ask her what she thinks about Sue and Jude and marriage and religion and all of this stuff. Liz. Yes, hi. Hello. Th- thank you so much for doing this. You're such a perfect person to speak with. First of all, you've read Jude the Obscure, I feel. <laughs> I have. Actually, it's one of my favorite uh, Thomas Hardy novels and one of my favorite pieces of Victorian literature. I actually named my son after Jude, which is, I mean, if you're in the book, you know that that's not exactly like, it's kind of like problematic thing maybe a little bit <laughs> yeah it's like having seen the omen and being like i'm gonna name my kid damien <laughs> yes no exactly and i would totally have named the child damien um <laughs> it's just like i just wasn't gonna have that many kids and um there's only so many bad names you can give a kid uh but i mean i just love um how messy the book is how mm-hmm. um just like a how beautifully wrought it is and so it is some might argue overwrought (laughs) 
it is fully wrought. See, I think there's this thing people have like about like older classic pieces of literature where they're like, oh, that's really boring. And you're like, no, no, no. Children do murder. People are very wrought. There's so much fun. Um, I recently read Lady Chatterley's Lover. Wow. I mean. Oh, really? Oh, God. I've never read that, but I haven't read most things. Um, There's so many dicks in that book. It's huh. just, am- I mean, it's truly a delight. It's just come, a delight. Come for the classics, stay for the dicks, is what you're saying. I mean, yeah. Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about, I mean, why you're so perfect, is not only have you read the book, and I think you're the first person that I've interviewed. Um, my wife read it in college, but she forgot yeah. literally everything about it. But you also uh, underwent a similar journey as Sue Bridehead in the book. Um, I mean, I grew up very um, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical, not on purpose. It's just how I was born. And then uh, found my way out of that um, in recent years. And one of the ways out was the divorce. I mean, like for Sue and so many women, it is um, the only way out. And was another way all the dicks that you're talking about? <laughs> well, <laughs> look, that's also part of the journey. That's the sequel. <laughs> that's the sequel. And so I I think it's interesting in so many ways that especially in many pockets of America that attitudes about, you know, who women should be and attitudes about marriage really haven't developed um, much farther than Thomas Hardy's time. So, yes, I have experienced quite a bit of that. And it's been it's been a real wild ride. So. So in your community, yes. uh, which was obviously a, a, probably closer to the kind of Victorian mores mm-hmm. than, say, the community I was raised in, which was fairly secular, yeah. uh, was di- was the divorce itself a cause for the for a similar kind of shame that S- Sue and Jude experienced in their marital quandaries? <laughs> There's still a lot of, I think, uh, stigma attached to it in a lot of churches. People cannot serve in leadership roles if they've mm-hmm. divorced. Um, sometimes exceptions can be made, you know, if if the divorce was because, you know, your your wife went off and got a lot of the dick, um, but not yours. <laughs> um, you know, I think sometimes those are evaluated on a case-by-case basis, but um, usually... Um, um, yeah, there's still a lot of these attitudes about um, about marriage and about divorce and about the good reasons for divorce. While I was um, while I was in the process of you know moving out, I was uh, emailed by a former minister who told me that he had been observing my situation, um, by which I think. I I don't know exactly what that meant because it's not like I was confiding in him, but he had Mm -hmm. finally decided that the divorce would be spiritually okay because it could be allowed on the grounds that I had left the faith and become an apostate. And so I was like, oh, chill, thanks. Like, that's really the most low-key email anybody could ever get. I didn't reply, but it... I think that's so weird because he's essentially, he's granting the church's permission on the grounds that you have nothing more to do with the church, that you're an apostate. Yeah, I know. So what the fuck difference does it make (laughs) what he says? Well, 
I don't think it was for me. I think it was right. for the other half then. And I think it was his way of letting me know, mm. you know, like, you can't leave us. You're fired. You know, like. <laughs> right. Did your ex-husband stay in the faith? Uh, y- yes. He uh, still goes to an evangelical church. Yes. And. Mm-hmm. Did so in a way. Uh, you, you're you, you kind of have opposite paths as as yes. Uh, yes. Sue and Jude. Yes. Um, is there anything that would return you to the faith? Could you would, could would would returning to that church ever be for you a um, could it could could you could you ever see yourself doing it? Um, <clears throat> here's probably the scenario. The world is burning. Mass uh-huh. apocalypse is happening. We're almost there. <laughs> we're all, I mean, we're so <laughs> close. The only way I can save all of humanity is by going in to that church and listening to, you know, one more horribly overwrought worship song. Then, yes, mm-hmm. I would do that. I would do it for humanity. But anything right. less than saving you all would of humanity, play the Christ figure. I would in this. Mar- Martyr myself <laughs> on the cross of an evangelical church that looks like a Hobby Lobby vomited in the inside. <laughs> I would do that, but you're welcome, America, because you know mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's the only. Did scenario. you <laughs> did you question your faith uh, growing up? Oh, absolutely. Was there, yeah. And was that? I mean, some faiths encourage that. Did yours? Oh no. No, no, no. Um, you know, I I'm I have a lot of like Hermione Granger energy, you know, like I was like, you know, I have a very distinct memory of like walking up to a pastor one time after the sermon with like all my little notes I had taken and been like, "Pastor, I have some questions." And him just looking at me and patting me on the head and being like, you don't you don't need to be asking questions like that you know it's so funny because that i mean i'm not as i said i'm secular but yes. i feel like judaism which is my oh, yeah. faith tradition yes. is is all about questioning yes there's that the you know that very strong tradition of you know question and answer and but i do kind of wonder too about the like who is allowed to ask questions and who isn't oh interesting you know, i would like to throw in a little bit of feminism uh-huh. here for a hot uh-huh. second and say that I think perhaps if I had been born with the manifold dicks we had um, you know previously discussed earlier, yeah yes uh-huh, that I wonder if it might have been more allowed you know just so I mean? you know Liz and I, I know I know you've come out of a relationship and everything else but most of us are only born with the one <laughs> it's almost never a manifold of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're, I think, I mean, I don't know having not grown up in your religion, but I, I suspect there's, there's probably something to that. Um, I, I, I suspect there is. And I, I think there are, you know, um, you know, of course, I think any religious tradition, if you get super, super conservative about it, they have a lot of overlaps. And of course, you know, yep. this was like a very conservative um, sect of Christianity, you know, not a lot of um, Christian denominations are like that, although they are. Are, you know, they seem to be holding sway over the public opinion right now. So it's very important. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're writing policy for us. Yeah. So, I think Mike so, Pence would be really into the Thomas Hardian model of marriage. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, your ex-husband isn't Mike Pence, is it? 
(laughs) (laughs) I want to thank you so much. And to our listeners, and uh, I'm going to encourage everybody to read your book, Godland. Thank you so much. That is Liz Lenz, everyone. The only person I know who named her son after this Jude and not the Beatles song. She's on Twitter at Liz, L-Y-Z-L-E-N-Z, Lenz. We're going to take a little break here on Obscure, and then we're going to wrap up this episode's reading. Okay, I'm back. Let us continue. So she says, it depends on your love. Ours is wrong. I won't have it, Sue. Come, when do you wish our marriage to be signed in a vestry? She paused and looked up uneasily. Never, she whispered. Not knowing the whole of her meaning, he took the objection serenely and said nothing. Several minutes elapsed, and he thought she had fallen asleep. But he spoke softly and found that she was wide awake all the time. She sat upright and sighed. There is a strange, indescribable perfume or atmosphere about you tonight, Sue, he said. I mean not only mentally, but about your clothes, too, a sort of vegetable scent, which I seem to know yet cannot remember. It is incense. Incense? I have been to the service at St. Silas's, and I was in the fumes of it. Oh, St. Silas's. Yes, I go there sometimes. Indeed, you go there. You see, Jude, it is lonely here in the weekday mornings when you were at work, and I think and think of of my... She stopped till she could control the lumpiness of her throat. And I have taken to go in there as is, as it is so near. Oh, well, of course I say nothing against it, only it is odd for you. They think little. They little think what sort of chiel is among them. Okay, chiel, C-H-I-E-L, and then among, A-M-A-N-G, which I imagine is among them. And then there's a little footnote. So we'll go to the footnote. Let me just turn to the back here and uh, see what, what that is. A child's among you taken notes from Robert Burns on the late Captain Gross's peregrinations. A child. A child? Is that maybe what that is? A child is a child among you taken notes? So, wait, of course I say nothing against it, only it is odd. They little think what sort of chiel is among them. So he's quoting Robert Burns, and he's saying, um, you know, I think it's, uh, they don't, they don't care who's there. Is that what they're saying? I don't know. And she says, what do you mean, Jude? Which is good, because I don't know what he means either. And he says, well, a septic to be plain. And I still don't know what that means. How can you pain me so, dear Jude, in my trouble? Yet I know you didn't mean it, but you ought not to say that. Okay, so now I have to look up. Oh, skeptic? Is that what you mean? Oh, 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 I see. I see. A skeptic. He's, they're spelling it in a different way than we do. S-C-E-P-T-I-C as opposed to the way we would spell it. S-K. So a, a skeptic. He's mocking her a little bit or he's mocking them. How can you be? How can you pain me so, dear Jude, in my trouble? Yet I know you didn't mean it, but you ought not to say that. I won't, but I am much surprised. Yeah, because she is a skeptic. Well, I want to tell you something else, Jude. You won't be angry, will you? He probably will be. I have thought of it a good deal since my babies died. I don't think I ought to be your wife, or as your wife, 
any longer. What? But you are. From your point of view, but of course we were afraid of this ceremony, and a good many others would have, be, would have been in our places with such strong reasons for fears. But our experience has proved how we misjudged ourselves and overrated our infirmities. And if you are beginning to respect rites and ceremonies as you seem to be, I wonder you don't say it shall be carried out instantly. You certainly are my wife, Sue, in all but law. What do you mean by what you said? I don't think I am. Not? But suppose we had gone through the ceremony, would you feel that you were then? No. I should not feel even then that I was. I should feel worse than I do now. Why so, in the name of all that's perverse, my dear? Because I am Richard's. Ah, you hinted that absurd fancy to me before. It was only an impression with me then. I feel more and more convinced as time goes on that I belong to him or to nobody. My good heavens, how we are changing places. Yes, perhaps so. Some few days later, in the dusk of the summer evening, they were sitting in the same small room downstairs when a knock came to the front door of the carpenter's house where they were lodging and in a few moments there was a tap at the door of their room. Before they could open it, the comer did so, and a woman's form appeared. Is Mr. Folly here? Jude and Sue started as he mechanically replied in the affirmative, for the voice was Arabella's. Well, I'll stop there. And they cannot escape. You know, you launch yourself from a planet and it seems no matter how high you get into space, you cannot escape its gravity. That gravity can be literal or it can be metaphoric or it can be spiritual. And both of them, it seems, are drawn inexorably back to the planets from which they escaped. Sue to Richard, now Jude, to Arabella, but more than that, the, 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 the bodies of greater mass than even the individuals, which are the customs and rites and ceremonies under which they were brought up. They can't escape who they are as much as they would have liked. That seems to be the message here in this book. And then if you go further, and we, of course we don't know how it ends yet, but Hardy just seems despondent, not because you can't escape the things, the ways in which you were, you were raised and, and, and the county from which you come. But more than that, that the, all of those things are by themselves so fouled and so creaky like my knees that they have little to no redeeming qualities of their own. So you're born, you're born on this bilious planet, you know, the swamp planet where everything smells like farts and you get into your little rocket ship and you go. And then somehow or another, you always circle back around and crash land in the same place, which you fruitlessly tried to leave. And the place itself sucks. 
it's just a sucky place. And the place, if you want to extend it, is just life, right? Hardy is just saying life sucks and then you die. So we kind of knew coming into the book that was likely to be where he was heading with all of this. But the thing is, if you have lived on the swamp planet your entire life and you only know the swamp planet, you make accommodations with it. And you think, yeah, I mean, it smells like farts. And the beasts here will rip your head off. And the fruit all tastes spoiled. But it's all you know. You know, and so you, 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 you reach a level of equilibrium with it. But if you go and you see the other planets, however distantly they may be, and you see what else might be possible even though you can't ever quite land there, something changes for you. Your view of the galaxy changes forever. And then when you slingshot back around and end up back on the swamp planet, all of the fruit tastes even worse than it did had you never left at all. The farts smell even worse. The beasts seem even more menacing because you know there's another vision of life out there and your rocket just wasn't powerful enough to get you there. And when you're born into obscurity, you just don't have enough fuel, you know? You can only cobble together so much jet fuel to get yourself out of there. And they just weren't able to do it. So they've landed now firmly back on the swamp planet. Well, uh, Sue has. And Jude, it seems like, is hovering in very low orbit above it. Fighting the gravity. And he could go either way now. You know, he might escape the atmosphere. He might not. But now Arabella has has come tap, tap, tapping at the door for reasons yet we do not know but when Arabella shows up we do know it's never good so what's going to happen will Sue return to Phillotson will Jude return to Arabella will both of them hang themselves like their children before them all is bleak all is bad all has that familiar odor, not of incense, but of farts. So we'll keep plowing on. We're, as I say, we're nearing the end. And indeed, all of these questions will be answered on another morose episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why 
did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>